welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Lizanne Namor, and I'm the host of this episode. And today I'm joined by several researchers in the field of personality and aging. So a very warm welcome to you, Flavia Kerekesh. Hi. Dennis Gerstoff. Hello. Eileen Graham. Hello. And Daniel Mrozek. Hello. Thank you all so much for being here today. I'm very excited about our discussion about personality and aging. Before we dive into that, I would like to ask you to introduce yourselves and a bit about what your interest is in this field. My name is Eileen Graham, and I'm an associate professor at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in the Department of Medical Social Sciences. Um, I'm a developmental psychologist by training, and I came to the study of personality and personality development via my interest in healthy aging in particular. My particular focus of interest is cognitive aging. So as I began my research career, I was really interested in understanding why some people retain their cognitive health throughout old age and why others don't do so well. And personality traits were one individual differences factor that seems to kind of capture this variability in cognitive health reasonably well. So I've spent a large part of my career exploring questions around personality and cognitive aging specifically. Thank you so much. I'm a PhD student at Tilburg University in the developmental department, working with Nicola Ballhausen, Gabriel Oraro, and Yvonne Primer. And my project is about grandparenthood and more specifically how this uh, new role in older age and also active enactment of the role through grandparenting can lead to better outcomes in terms of health, uh, well-being and cognition. And what we know so so far from past literature and also our findings is that results are mixed. So I'm looking at the condition under which this role is actually beneficial and also for what individuals and here personality. And I developed an, an interest in personality and more specifically personality and health during my master's. Thank you, Flavia. I'm Dan Rosek and I am in the psychology department at Northwestern University. I'm a professor. I'm also in the medical social sciences department in the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern, just like Eileen Graham. So I'm actually joint appointed. I'm in both the arts and sciences college as well as the medical school. And my interest in personality and aging go back to when I was in graduate school back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, so going 35 years ago. And that led to interest in personality and health because aging and health are, are very closely related. And a lot of my work is focused over the last 25 years on personality predictors of physical health outcomes and longevity. And lately have also been getting into some of the same work as I mean, personality and cognitive aging outcomes, an area that I know Dennis has worked in as well over the past 20 years. So I'll turn it over to Dennis. Thanks a lot. My, my name is Dennis Gürsdorf. I'm a professor and chair of developmental psych at Humboldt University, Berlin, Germany. I also have a, a, an appointment as a research fellow of the German socioeconomic panel. This is probably one of the longest running national surveys worldwide. I have the privilege to serve as an associate slash section editor for psychology and aging and gerontology. And I also very much enjoy being the chairperson of a study we affectionately call BASE, stands for Building Aging Study Number 2, which is a multi-institutional, a multi-disciplinary consortium devoted to the study of age and aging. So we have social and behavioral sciences on board, we have medical sciences on board, as well as molecular genetics. And I'm also a developmental psychologist by training. 
And as developmental psychologists, we are typically thinking along three major lines of questions, namely first, how does a, a developmental phenomenon look like uh, in terms of its average trajectory, as well as the fluctuations and inter-individual differences around this, so the heterogeneity, and I'm particularly interested in, let's say, this the individuality, if you wish, the, of age and aging. And then the second question that we as developmental scientists are always asking is, how come these average trajectories and inter-individual differences all about. So it's a basically boiling down to the question of antecedents and predictors. And then the question of what is the outcome? What is the consequence of this? And against this backdrop, what has really put me on fire for the study of personality and aging is basically the question, what we see in terms of personality profile and constellation in old and particularly in very old age, is this belonging to the antecedent side? Is it kind of a buffer that is protecting us against the evil that we are typically facing? In, in old and very old age? Or is what we see there as a, as a personality constellation, is this a consequence of all the challenges? So is this kind of an adaptive response? And probably it's both sides of that. But this is what really had dragged me into this into this field. And I, I still have a, don't have a very good answer to solve that question yet, but probably in 20 years from now, if I'm still alive, I do have an answer, hopefully. Thank you so much for introducing yourselves. It's really great to hear what you're doing. And I think especially your answer, Dennis, really already touches upon some of the topics that I want to discuss today, starting actually with your first line of research that you mentioned, namely the question of what is the average pattern? Is there an average pattern in terms of how people age in terms of their personality? So is there a general personality change going on? Well, it depends on who you ask and when you ask them <laughs> and where they live when you ask them and how you ask them. There are a lot of ways to answer that question. One paper that we put out recently that actually now that I'm looking around at all the squares, me, Dennis, and Dan are all on this paper, where we looked to basically address the question uh, within the context of the big five personality traits. So neuroticism, extroversion, openness, conscientiousness, and agreeableness. To what extent do those five traits change over time? Are there individual differences around an average trajectory and can we predict it? Basically, what we did is we identified a large for us number of data sets that had requisite data to fit those models. And we did find evidence for both linear and nonlinear change over the course of the entire adult lifespan. So Studies ranged from, I think, about age 20 up to over 100 years old. And we found, you know, pretty much in line with what had been theorized, like social investment theory, the maturity principle. We see some evidence for increasing on some traits through midlife and then decreasing again into older adulthood. We found this curvilinear effect most pronouncedly for neuroticism. So people become less neurotic on average through midlife, and then that ticks back up into older adulthood. And that was replicated across the 16 studies that we had identified. So that's like the short and maybe even for us oversimplified answer to the question, because there's so many nuances to it, the individual differences, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, Dennis might have something to say about as well. And I can probably add to this uh, by alerting to one of the things that, that we have been recently doing, namely to examine uh, the question is, uh, does the historical times that we are living in also matter for trajectories of, of personality? We have just published a paper using data from the Seattle Longitudinal Study 
K. Warner-Shire's uh, seminal study where we could make use of 50 years of data to examine to what extent it is. It really matters which historical times you are living in. And yes, it seems as if there are at least level differences. So we, we have seen that uh, letter-borne cohorts exhibiting today higher levels of agency-related trends, uh, such as extraversion and openness. And this may, may reflect probably the societal requirements that are put on, on, onto people today. Agency is a kind of a necessary tool to survive in today's world. And we also know from other studies that uh, perceptions of control are typically higher today as compared with, with the past. And the other piece of uh, insights that we have gained from the study is that there are only higher levels on certain traits, but also lower levels on other traits, particularly when it comes to maturity-related trends, such as agreeableness and the way we have Try to interpret this is that and this has probably something to do with adolescents and young adults entering the, the adult world later and later in their lives. So we have prolonged education, we are entering the job market later, etc. So if we know the social roles and the investments that we make into those social roles do have profound implications for the personality development. And when you are entering these age-graded social roles later, when the timing of these roles is shifted towards later and later ages, then this may contribute to these uh, lower maturity related trends. So over and above what what Aline has been saying, I think there are a number of different further factors that we need to take into account, such as historical time. I'm really glad you brought that up, Dennis. And that's one thing I've been thinking a lot about as I reflect back on that paper, which was published in 2020. And, you know, as they say, if you look back on your body of research, if you're completely satisfied with it, then you're not growing as a researcher. And looking back on that paper, I'm already seeing ways that we could have done it differently, or we can kind of extend beyond that. And I think one piece of that is really tapping into this like age period cohort effect in personality development. So there's a lot that we could say about those average trajectories, depending on what decade those data sets were initiated, how old those people were at that timeline. So we could really tap into the age period and cohort differences. And I think that a really important next step. So I'm glad that you guys are continuing to pursue that. On top of that, although, yeah, it's extremely important to look at these average patterns, as Eileen described in the paper that Dennis and her and I did back in 2020. And it's certainly extremely important to look at the cohort effects that Dennis talked about. But it's important to keep in mind, and Dennis had, had mentioned this at the very beginning, it's, a, it's important to realize that um, all of these are dwarfed by the heterogeneity or the individual differences in personality trajectories. The the symbol of the lifespan personality development uh, pre-conference of SPSP is a spaghetti plot that shows all the, you know, like, you know, a thousand different personality trajectories. You can certainly identify an overall pattern for any trait or any construct. Doesn't have to be traits, any kind of personality characteristic or any kind of well-being characteristic. You can identify an overall pattern. You can identify even cohorts, you know, in that overall pattern. But there will always be this very large range of individual differences around any given average trajectory. And that's fascinating to me. Like, why is it that there is so much ideographic uh, variation? That's something we can perhaps get into later on in, in the podcast, because there's some interesting ideas about what gives rise to this heterogeneity. Uh, Peter Molinar and Emery Beck and others have ideas about why this heterogeneity comes about. So I'll stop there. Yeah, thank you so much for this very first take on aging and personality. So it seems to me that from your answers, I get that there are some complicating factors, namely cohort effects. We have a lot of individual differences 
in addition to that general trajectory. But from Eileen's response, I got that at least if I'm looking at my parents and my grandparents, what I should at least expect is that they're going to become more neurotic. Is that is that correct? Maybe. <laughs> On average. On average. This is the whole idea behind like individual differences research is that not everybody changes. Your grandparents might decrease in neuroticism. They might not change at all. What we captured was the average effect. But like Dan was saying, that spaghetti plot, like there are individual differences in all of these trajectories. So kind of accounting for that, like why do some people change in this direction and others don't is another next step that people are trying to capture. I like uh, this idea of, because we see this in increases in neuroticism towards old age uh, and towards end of life and also uh, decreases in conscientiousness. And I think it's interesting that maybe, yeah, these are adaptive for older adults as they are changing, their health is changing and they need to adjust their goals to their new situation. And yeah, this would be then in line with Balthus theory. So yeah, lifespan is characterized by both uh, losses and gains. And then in, in, in older age, you have more losses that kind of prompt you to re-evaluate your goals. And maybe it's no longer that much necessary to have achievement striving goals uh, yeah, when health is declining fast. To add to this and to broaden the scope a bit, so one of the things that I have thought about while prepping for this podcast is, okay, let's probably not only talk about the big five, but there are other individual difference characteristics that are of major importance. So let's just think of loneliness. And coming back to your question of what about the expectations for your parents, it may actually depend upon the age that your parents are growing into. And we as developmental psychologists are borrowing from Baltus's terminology, differentiating between the third age and the fourth age. Third age would be people in their 60s, 70s, and fourth age would be uh, people in their 80s, 90s, and at the very end of life. And coming back to loneliness, because I think this theme, because the pattern of loneliness uh, needs to, or the general narrative when it comes to loneliness needs to be uh, differentiated a bit, because at least from my point of view, uh, to, uh, to one sided. So, yes, it is a good thing that uh, in the UK, for example, or in Japan, they have prioritized uh, loneliness as a public health issue by appointing ministers of loneliness, which is a very, very good thing. Right. But uh, when it comes to the empirical evidence, we see that in the third age, so people in their 60s and 70s, for them, the rates of loneliness are down historically. So they are not on an upward trajectory, but rates of loneliness are lower today as compared with rates of loneliness some 20 or 30 years ago when we look at people in their 60s and 70s. And this is way, way different from, let's say, young adults or adolescents. So we have this meta-analysis from Susanne Brücker demonstrating that loneliness among emerging adults is rising. Right? And we know, for example, that in the fourth age, age-related increases in loneliness are through the roof. So they are eating up those historical reductions. Uh, so it really depends upon the age that we are talking about. And we actually don't know anything about loneliness midlife. So the answer to your question is what to expect is really depending upon the age that we are talking about. Yeah, so also if we're talking about older age, we actually need to talk about two different stages in that period. Thank you so much for that, that addition. I think that also brings me actually to the the next question that I had. And also, again, uh, coming back to, to your introduction, then is the, the second question that you mentioned, talking about these antecedents, what are factors influencing personality change in older adulthood, but also, again, predicting perhaps these individual differences that we see? 
what are the things that potentially predict personality change, either general data or individual difference? That's a question that has vexed this area for a long time. A few things have come out that have been consistent. There's some social role changes. There's a few things that have that that, have, that seem to have emerged as significant predictors. You know, although the effect sizes are not large, the general story. This is the, this is I think maybe best captured in a, a review paper from a few years ago by Deepka Blydorn, Rich Lucas, and. Christopher Hopwood, they looked at life events of a major class of predictors that you think would affect or account for a variation in personality involvement, variation in personality change. And they found that their, the evidence was very inconsistent. And, and that's been what many of us have found over, over the years. It's hard to find consistent predictors of, of personality change. I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier about these ideographic trajectories. The same predictor, for example, divorce, could have a different effect on different people and on, and on their respective personality trajectories. For some people, divorce is like a huge relief. It's like, oh, thank goodness I'm out of that relationship. And so that actually might lead to reductions in neuroticism. Whereas others, it's a devastating uh, life event and it brings about increases in neuroticism. So using simply divorce as a, or any other life event like that, any other stressful life event, mainly leads to confusing results because it means different things for different people. This gives rise to what I was saying earlier about this, this idiosyncrasies that these life events, as they pile up, can make us just go in, in these different directions um, with regard to our personality trajectories. I think the first person to talk about this was Peter Molinar. And I believe Dennis was at Penn State with Pierre. You guys were colleagues. In fact, you both were faculty at Pennsylvania State University. When he came up with this idea, I think he was the first one, but others, uh, Josh Jackson at WashU St. Louis, Emory Beck at uh, University of California Davis, have picked up on this idea and have written recent papers on this idiosyncratic nature of personality development. So the answer is not straightforward. It's complicated. I'll stop. I'll stop there and let others uh, give their opinions. And I can add to this. So carrying forth this idea of idiosyncrasy, I think one way to structure this idiosyncrasy of uh, individual difference characteristics they may matter is again age. So we have this amplification model of personality in old age. So arguing that uh, when you are entering old age, probably the the effects of personality are uh, getting stronger and stronger. Again, borrowing from Baldi's, he would have called the personality a general purpose mechanism of adaptation. So this is a resource that you are drawing from uh, in order to master the developmental challenges that the developmental tasks that you are confronted with. And uh, let's say conscientious people are diligent and they are well organized. And it is particularly this diligence and this being well organized is particularly important when they need to deal with uh, and follow a strict dietary regimen or complex medication schedule. So this is one perspective on this. And this is probably particularly true, let's say, in uh, third age. But in the fourth age, it is probably the other way around that uh, there are more and more factors that are shaping personality, such as health. So because the health challenges that you are confronted with become more and more frequent, they become more and more severe. It is not so much that personality is driving other realms of life, but it is that those other realms of life are driving what is going on in, in terms of personality. This is probably one, one way to get back to this idiosyncrasy. Uh, there are ma many more influencing factors, but age uh, and the, the actual challenges that you are confronted with is probably one of those. I'm thinking that these changes in personality that follow changes in health and how everything is also in feedback loops, starting maybe also early on. 
So I remember now um, a paper from uh, Benjamin Chapman from 2020, and then there they found that personality in adolescents actually predicts cognition in older age. But then up to older age, there's a lot of feedback loops that happen in between. And yeah, personality impacting health and health in response leading to changes in personality. Yeah, that's a really great point. I was actually going to bring up something very similar with respect to cognitive health in particular, kind of jumping off of what Dennis was saying. uh, One thing that we think about a lot with respect to how personality and personality development are influencing cognitive health is with respect to what we think about as like the common soil. So if there's underlying neuropathologies that are accumulating in a person's brain, for example, if the that's happening in the prefrontal cortex, that could be affecting your personality. So when we observe personality, personality development in earlier life, that can be influencing, you know, like using the health behavior model is kind of our framework, like your personality is influencing how engaged you are with your environment, how edu- how much education you attain, et cetera, et cetera, which might impact your cognitive health later on. But then as you get older, the question kind of becomes, is personality change a risk factor or a protective factor, or is it actually a symptom of something else going on? Kind of in terms of like these feedback loops or these cycles, like we have to keep that in mind when it comes to cognitive health, because if we see like ex- like more pronounced or like the magnitude of your personality change could actually be a sign of something else going on. So if I understand you you correctly, it's it's really an interplay between personality and other factors that is going on much more than one thing predicting the other or vice versa. I think one factor that you didn't name that was well relatively specific is is health, uh, health predicting personality. Are there other specific things that you could name that are found to be important for personality change during older age, even if with small effects, as Dan mentioned? Some of the things that, that all everyone here, Dennis, I mean, have, have all uh, have all mentioned is social things like loneliness, social factors. Uh, I think those are things that, in addition to health, in older adulthood, could operate in one of these feedback loops that that was mentioned earlier. Different aspects of you know of social support, aspects of, of one's social network, and you know essentially one's social life, including things like loneliness, which is which has been uh, discussed earlier. I think that in addition to health, these are things that as well in older adulthood can influence personality and then, you know, but then, but then like get into one of these feedback groups that was just, that was talked about earlier in ways that are unique to older adulthood, to the third age, or even the fourth age, as distinct from the way those feedback groups would look like in midlife or even earlier. You've all already given some reasons for why we may want to study personality in older age, there being unique feedback loops, um, it being related to health, it being related to loneliness. But what do you think are the most important reasons why we want to study, why we should be interested in personality during during this later life stage, as opposed to perhaps other life stages? I wouldn't take any particular phase of life be more important than another. So that's why it's kind of always difficult to, to answer this particular question. But what I think is really important about the study of personality in old age is the question of what is adaptive and what is not adaptive. And I think there are probably more discontinuities as compared with earlier phases of life that there are continuities. And one set of empirical findings from our own group that was really eye-opening from my perspective was we have studied how personality relates to well-being as people move into the last years of life. And let's say 10 years out, 
we have obtained the typical pattern. So the people who are low on neuroticism and high on the other uh, four factors are typically reporting higher levels of well-being. But these differences are getting smaller and smaller and smaller as people are moving into death. The reason is that it is those who are low on neuroticism as opposed to those who are high who are experiencing this deepest decline. Those who are high on agreeableness are the ones who are showing more severe terminal declines. It's not the ones who are low on agreeableness. And the, uh, our interpretation was probably it is something about probably how personality is adaptive is changing. And Flavia was already alluding to this. And yes, it is probably a good thing, an adaptive thing to increase in your neuroticism because it helps you to uh, to identify or to have an, a heightened awareness of uh, health constraints and resource constraints. And this is why you are disengaging from unattainable goals. It prevents you from engaging in, in activities that may cause exhaustion and frustration. So my point is that uh, what used to be an adaptive personality characteristics throughout one's life may not necessarily remain an adaptive personality characteristic and probably the other way around what used to be all the way through an, a maladaptive characteristic is all of a sudden an adaptive characteristic i think this is why it is important because we cannot just generalize findings that we have obtained from earlier phases of life straight forward to what is going on in old age probably the things there are quite different can we then also say that there is such a thing as a healthy personality profile during old age where neuroticism is high and all the other four factors are low or is that too simplistic yeah so one angle that we have taken in the past is to kind of look at like just within one particular context is there sort of a profile of, of in terms of healthy aging a profile of personality and so we were looking at this idea of healthy neuroticism, like, is there a healthy amount of a neuroticism where on average at the main effect level, we see that being higher neuroticism is, is associated with poorer health outcomes across the lifespan and into old age, not necessarily into the fourth age as Dennis was just talking about. But is it possible that for some being very high in neuroticism, but also very high in conscientiousness may in fact be better for your health than being just conscientious alone or just or being low in neuroticism, for example. And we think of it in terms of having a heightened vigilance so you're more anxious and more worried about your health but it's paired with a higher conscientiousness so you are tending to be you know more organized and vigilant and proactive about your health so we did this giant paper series where we looked at across a bunch of data set can we see this interaction between neuroticism and conscientiousness predicting consequential health outcomes and what we found was that that particular interaction was related to engaging in healthy behaviors so healthy neuroticism was related to a lower likelihood of drinking uh, drinking heavily, smoking, greater engagement in physical activity. But we did not find that it was consistently related to the onset of chronic conditions or with mortality. So a little bit inconclusive there, but like if we're thinking about it in terms of like a mediator model, it's related to that APATH. So it's related to engaging in healthier behaviors, but not necessarily to your health downstream. So that might kind of tag on to what Dennis was saying about like later on in life, that's not necessarily what it's all about because, you know, being more neurotic. And did you find anything with conscientiousness specifically, Dennis? Because you mentioned neuroticism and agreeableness. What did you find with conscientiousness? I think conscientiousness was in the middle. It wasn't showing this this particular pattern that I had been talking about. This, so this is what, what the other 
but the other big five look more like. All right. So this more adaptive, well, if we can can say that there's an adaptive personality profile, then we do see that personality in older age is predictive of some health outcomes, but not others. Do you see that as the most important outcome in terms of like old age, or do you see other important outcomes of, of personality in that life stage as well? I would say mortality is probably, is probably not the most important outcome. Things like healthy aging and health span, quality of life, having a good uh, life when you're an older adult is probably th those are th those are very important outcomes. Like I really really at the beginning of kind of like exploring whether personality predicts these, but I would suspect that they do. I think this idea that we've been talking about that what is what is adaptive personality might might be very different at different ages. What might be uh, um, maladaptive at one age is adaptive at another. That's a fascinating idea. And there's parallels in other areas. There's, an, there's this idea of antagonistic pleiotropy that comes out of evolutionary biology. That essentially, is the same idea. Something that has a positive effect earlier in life has a detrimental effect later, or vice versa. These are very powerful ideas that um, have been explored, not only in psychology, but by other fields as well. So I think around us be quite important here. Probably to add to this, I think the, the interplay also with, between personality on the one hand and cognitive functioning on the other hand is we are also only beginning to understand that. So yes, there's evidence that openness to experience may operate as a buffer against cognitive declines. But I shouldn't leave my head too much out of the window here because this paper is not yet submitted even. We are about to submit this, but we have some, some, some evidence. So we have gotten our hands on the NACO, the German National Cohort Study. One of the beauties of that study is that it is cross-sectional data. Okay. There's not, this is certainly not a beauty, but the beauty is that there we have a cognitive functioning test for more, from more than 40,000 people. And they have also filled out personality questionnaires. So we have been in a position to test with unprecedented statistics the power, how personality is associated with cognitive functioning, and particularly to what extent these associations may be nonlinear. And what the basic finding of this analysis is, is that with the exception of neuroticism, all four of the big five show uh, nonlinear association. All of them are showing uh, an inverse U-shaped association. In other words, personality is particularly important or shows particularly strong associations with cannabis cognition at the lower end of the functioning spectrum. So if you are going up from, let's say, openness from a, uh, on a scale from one to seven, let's say from two to three, then this one unit difference is associated with compensation in quotes of cognitive differences that amount to 10 years. So this is not negligible. Right. So, uh, yes, I think personality is, is really an important factor in this entire spectrum of, uh, of other factors, but we are only beginning to understand how it is exactly operating. And one of the things that we should be talking about in this outlook is that probably we should also move away from always using these big five. Probably more uh, action is happening at, at the facet level. This is where we are seeing real associations, whereas Let's say by lumping all of these uh, dimensions or all of these facets together in, into a larger trade, then this uh, these effects get washed out. I completely agree, Dennis. And I would say, I, I would never say, go back and read my dissertation, but that's exactly what I was saying in my dissertation like a million years ago. And granted, I only had like a sample of 150 
people and it was cross-sectional data, but we did find some evidence that maybe the facets are more important than the traits themselves and that the traits are masking some nuance underneath the hood. And I think we're kind of starting to head in that direction. So just coming off of ARP, the Association for Research and Personality, you guys know what that is. Uh Back in July, there's like this big conversation about moving beyond the big five and drilling down into the facet level or even at the item level. How much information can you gain from that? And I know that there's like debates and conversations and limitations to like doing item level analysis, but, you know, it really gets into these like individual, like more nuanced characteristics that like you really don't get the full scope of what 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 does the trait really mean? Like, what is the most important thing? Like, is it being conscientiousness or is it being motivated? Is it being organized? Is my neuroticism impeding my cognitive function because I'm prone to worry or it's because my intrusive thought keeps me up at night and really it's just my lack of sleep? So what is it about neuroticism? So those questions keep me up at night. <laughs> I completely agree with this. And I want to add that yeah, this is one thing that um, interests me and also related to grandparenthood because uh, when reading through literature, what we see in qualitative studies that newly grandparents support this role as something that uh, made them have a new outlook on life and made them yeah happy and enjoy. And But then looking at changes as and quantitative data, we don't really see changes in personality. So Michael Kramer in 2022, uh, they looked at changes in big fives and uh, didn't find consistent uh, findings for the, these domains. We also looked at purpose in life and also we didn't find changes. So yeah, I'm thinking that maybe with this transition, it's not necessarily, we won't necessarily see changes in achievement striving, but more in things like dutifulness. So looking at more specific personality components might actually show a different picture of how personality changes. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a really interesting point. And I think what you also mentioned, Eileen, that it was was a topic at ARP. I think it's also in the, the broader discussion in personality psychology that we are moving in that direction, right, of the importance of these facets and that we need to look at these facets. So that's really interesting to hear that it's also really uh, one of the topics for the future of the personality and aging fields. What do you consider as the, I keep saying the most important, but it can also just be any important unanswered questions that you already have for the future. So I already heard you mention these facets. Dan, you also already mentioned relationships with with other outcomes are not really understood that well. Are there other things that you consider as, as vital questions for the future? Maybe also when looking at life events, they tend to happen in, it's not just one life event that happens, for example, with grandparenthood, maybe there's also the transition to retirement. So trying to combine these life events that happen in a life period when looking at uh, personality changes. And then something that was uh, already mentioned, and it's really interesting for me, is looking at personality constructs beyond the big five framework. For example, I'm interested in sense of purpose, and we're now looking at how the reciprocal associations between sense of purpose and uh, health in older age. And we found that sense of purpose predicts health, and this is what has been shown previously. But what we found interesting is that changes in health actually did not really consistently predict changes in a sense of purpose. So, and then older adults also showed very high sense of purpose despite this health decrement. So for me, it's interesting from where do these individuals get their sense of purpose? That's a great answer. 
I was going to say something very similar in terms of, well, I was thinking about what you were saying with respect to grandparenthood and these like life events that are really specific to older adults. So when somebody retires, when somebody becomes a grandparent, if and when, assuming most of those things happen, they don't always, but how does that influence things that are not the big five, like one's sense of purpose or one's social isolation or their generativity? So all of those things can be influenced by those life events that are very specific to like early older adulthood and how those might then in turn impact, you know, overall well-being and health, I think are really big, important questions. Yeah, probably to add to this and coming back to one of the things that we have discussed earlier is the question about historical shift in personality trajectories. So what I had reported on versus higher levels of agency-related traits, lower levels of maturity-related traits. But what we don't see there are changes in the actual rate of change or the onset of change. Uh, so this seems to be invariant across historical time. This is very much in line with what we have seen in many other areas of life. So for example, for, for cognitive functioning, we see this massive level shift. So let's say older adults today are cognitively much, much fitter than older adults of the past. And we are talking about something like uh, one standard deviation, if not more difference uh, about the 20 year period. These are massive effects. But when we look at the rate of change, it's completely in parallel. And this brings us to the, to the broader question, is this really a substantive phenomenon? So is it really there? Or is it, let's say, driven by our poor man's approach by, I don't know, us being underpowered, not having tested people often enough? Or do we need to wait longer? So let's say, I don't know, 20 years of time may suffice for these level differences to appear, but it takes 40 or 50 years for those change differences to appear. Or are our scaling, our, our measurement instruments uh, not, not subtle enough uh, to pick pick up these these minor changes. So I don't know. And I think we need to do a better job at resolving these analytic and data collection issues so as to exclude these as contributing to the larger phenomenon. And of course, we also need to better understand what are the explanatory factors. So yes, we do some post-hoc interpretation and say, yes, it's probably this differences in the timing of social investments, but we actually do not know because we have not tested this. And what we need to do is to really make use of uh, analytic tools that allow us to test this. And there are, let's say, um, propensity score matching techniques around in other fields. Uh, we don't even need, need to identify real trends. We can even operate the synthetic trends. This is something that, that Nilam Ram is currently working on. And I think this is something that, that we need to pick up on more and more in order to also get our fingers onto the explanatory factors, not just do the description. We have done a good job so far at the description, but we need to move on to uh, do the explanation and uh, prediction part and even intervention part at some point. What it sounds like you're saying, Dennis, is that the phenomenon we're seeing might be preserved differentiation or differential preservation. It might be the Flynn effect. It might be statistical artifacts or methodological design flaws. <laughs> could be any number or combination of those things. And some of those, the only way to answer them is to first invent the time machine and then go back in time and start the studies over. <laughs> exactly. And use all the knowledge and wisdom we have now. If only that was possible, but I completely agree with what you're saying and that using what we know now to use the data to, to our best ability could really help. 
And now we are in a position that we can really harvest the fruits of what other people have been sowing some 50 years ago. Probably we should be sowing out, uh, proceed in, in, in a similar manner so that our successors, people who, who will be following us can harvest the fruits of what uh, of the seeds that we are sowing. Okay, so really questions related to theory, related to methodology, but also related to content questions, right? The time machine obviously being one of them, but what kind of other obstacles do you see in pursuing these questions and in, in answering these questions? I mean, talking about uh, our own work, so Dan and Eileen have together with many others, we have made the decision some 10 to 15 years ago for very, very good reasons to conduct our analysis typically uh, in a iterative fashion, so to, to analyze one data after the other. And this was done because we typically ha have not been in a position to pool the data or to harmonize and or to harmonize the data, but probably we should be revisiting this decision some 15 years later because either data are around that allow us to pool data or to harmonize data, or there are pool analytic tools such, such as IRT modeling now in a much better shape than 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that really allow us to pool the data. Because if we were in a position to pool the data, we would be opening up way more doors for, for our analyses, right? So we could test our questions with uh, unprecedented statistical power. We can test uh, mediators and moderators directly. I don't know. So this is something that we should do as our work probably revisit some of the decisions, the well-taken decisions uh, some 10 years ago, probably we, we should be um, exploring to what extent we can broaden the scope a bit. I don't know. So then what, what is your perspective on that? Would this be too optimistic? What you're saying is true. Um, what used to be, you know, certain professional standards back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, one obvious one is uh, two-way longitudinal studies. And for a, for, a lot of, for a lot of years throughout the 19. 60s and 1970s people were like oh yeah i got two waves that's longitudinal and and then it became very clear by the 1980s and the 90s that like that was inadequate was people were like no we need more occasions of measurement so that was an obvious one where the the mistakes or um knowledge that was gained like in the past is now being like now now, now no one would ever do this without a two-wave longitudinal study uh in fact many studies including the ones that we've been working on the group of us here we have many ways in, in some cases you know seattle longitudinal study 20, 30 waves. You can see progress. The IRT, in response to your idea that you mentioned, Dennis, is fascinating. Eileen and I were exploring this way back when we first came to Northwestern, almost 10, well, yeah, 10, almost 10 years ago. And we did run into some technical, there are a lot of item response theory experts in our medical department, the medical social sciences department. We consulted with them and uh, there, are, there are some technical issues with longitudinal IRT, they've fully been worked out yet, but they are not that these are impossible. They just need more uh, time to kind of develop some of these models. But longitudinal IRT models, uh, where not only are measures harmonized across a single wave, but also are comparable across multiple waves. I would say, like, I don't, I don't want to put a time frame on it, but maybe within ten years, maybe less, uh, we would have such models that, and then, as you say, yes, that would be because then we could just look at all the longitudinal data that we have, all the waves and all the studies, and, and just you know, and just and just and do a really huge analysis. Uh, when will that day come? I don't know, but probably 
probably at least 10 years, but I, I could be wrong. I, I do others have opinions? I'm not sure. Yeah, sure. I have some thoughts. I think that's a really great, uh, uh, great thoughts, Dennis. And I think that there's some like really powerful potential there that we could be harnessing. But there's also some benefits to keeping data, data sets separate. For example, as we're discovering as we're going along with trying to answer some of these questions and some of these smaller data sets, a lot of them aren't accessible and we can't pull them because just for strict like consent reasons. So the consent forms of um, when the data were collected didn't allow for sharing of data with other external investigators. So kind of like the PIs of the studies, their hands are tied, they can't share their data. So using the tools of coordinated analysis really allows for using and uh, increasing like inclusion and accessibility to these other data sets that we might not otherwise have. So kind of doing a both and depending on the question we're asking, depending on what we want to do. Um, we have a paper that is it out yet? I don't think it's out yet. It's under review, I think. Um, and basically, we almost a horse race of all these different approaches to integrative data analysis. And if we ask the same exact question in the same exact set of data sets using all these different IDA methods, so coordinated analysis with and without meta-analysis, pooled analysis with random effects, blah, blah, blah. Like, I think there were like six or seven different variations. And we basically find that the answer to the question doesn't change given your method. So part of our paper is a flowchart of what are you trying to do? How are you wanting to do it? And what's the best integrative data analysis tool to use? So whereas for some of the questions we really want to have that power to drill down into moderators, a pooled analysis would be awesome. But if the harmonization is just completely unwieldy, both at the within and between study level, sometimes coordinated analysis is just more practical. And it stands to reason you're likely to encounter the same answer either way. So it almost becomes like, for practical purposes, which one makes the most sense? Yeah, this is called the data synthesis paper. Data it actually synthesis. has a title, but I don't, I can't remember what the title is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's nicknames for all our projects. <laughs> data synthesis paper, and I think it's correct, it's still under review right now. So far, I've, I've mostly heard you talk about statistical challenges and, and one of them still being really an obstacle that needs to be overcome. Are there also maybe theoretical or, or other types of, of obstacles that are really right now still there that need to be overcome in order for this field to move forward? This field being the personality and aging field. I also think it's interesting how the mechanisms that explain the link between personality and health might as well change throughout the lifespan. So we would have a different mechanism in young adulthood to meet adulthood than in older age. And yeah, it's a searching for, for the exact one pose a challenge in itself. Yes, absolutely. And also probably tying back into the statistical challenges, right? Because then you would also have to be able to model it, model. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. If there is no other obstacles, then um, let's let's end the episode on a very positive note. Because I'm sure you've all talked about a lot of research, and I, I'm sure there must be findings in in that bulk of research that you think were eye opening or very surprising in a positive or negative way. Uh, so I was just wondering if you could share what are, in your opinion, the most interesting or surprising findings that you've come across in this uh, this field of personality research? They can be your own findings. They can also be of other people. 
I would probably try to combine this question with your formal one. Probably not so much about a finding, a specific set of findings, but more about trying to combine approaches uh, that, have, that have been identified as very promising uh, in the field of personality psych and in the field of, of developmental psych and try to vet those. Uh, with one another, try to combine them and try to integrate them. And uh, as, a, as developmental scientists, we have a long and very rich history of uh, trying to understand the role of context uh, for individual development. So how individuals and contexts co-regulate one another. So we have Yuri Bronfenbrenner's concentric circles idea being around. We have uh, Paul Lawton's environment docility concept around. So there are a number of those uh, concepts that have demonstrated very convincingly how the contexts that we are living in are shaping individual functioning and development. And personality psych-like uh, is looking back on a very rich history of studying the role of context, probably with a, with a different terminology, but a similar uh, richness. So just think of the diamond model, for example, from John Rodman. Uh, so the situation and tax, uh, taxonomies. And if you're in a position to combine and integrate these and apply this to, this to the study of old adults, and particularly very old adults, I think we can learn quite a bit by really trying to better understand, uh, let's say, the, the, the daily life dynamics. And uh, our colleagues in, in Münster, Media Buck, Stefan Pernestler, they have been forewarning a model, at least my naive understanding, very much walking in the footsteps of, of Walter Michel and uh, they're tr trying to look at classes of, of situations so that uh, you have to be uh, flexible in order to adjust your strategies across different situations. So in this sense, uh, var var variation from one set of classes to the next is a very good thing. But if you are using a similar flexibility or set of fluctuations within the same set of situations, then this may be maladaptive. So think of, I don't know, it is a very good thing to show different social behavior as compared or when, when you are dealing with your kid as opposed to dealing with your boss at work. Uh, so in this sense, fluctuation is good, but if you are showing a very strong variation in uh, obviously with your kid, then this is very irritating. It's very maladaptive. And I think we as developmental psychologists can many things learn from uh, the developments in, uh, in, in personality psych in order to better understand uh, the big picture questions that we are after now in, in the study of old age. Right now, my favorite thing that we found recently, and this is another paper that's under review, was a coordinated analysis looking at just very simply the extent to which big five personality traits predict odds of dementia. And as has been the case with just the theory behind random effects meta-analysis and coordinated analysis, and in our own experiences that we generally see a lot of heterogeneity that we try to explain. So why do we see this spread of effects? What can account for it? But when it came to predicting dementia odds, we found a very cleanly replicated effect across, I think, Dan, nine data sets that neuroticism predicts higher odds of dementia and conscientiousness predicts lower odds of dementia. And the force plot is like a straight line down for both, like very little variation, like it's robust and it's a fairly strong effect for all studies. So that was really exciting and kind of surprising, but exciting. Do you have any idea about what is going on and what is explaining that effect? Well, that's, I mean, that's our whole research area is to try to drill down into exactly what's going on and why. We didn't try to answer the question of why or what sort of mechanisms or moderators are going on. This was just, can we replicate the main effect? And we mm -hmm. did. So I think our next steps will be to go into try like basically moving the signal around. So what can account for that 
are these effects stronger at certain ages, less strong at certain ages, et cetera? I guess there are two things I would point to that are that have been in recent years that have been quite interesting, uh, not necessarily in person aging, but it's relevant for um, for the topic of, of personality development in older adulthood. Um, first is a, a meta-analysis that came out in 2017 that has a number of authors on it, uh, Jane Luo, uh, Rodika Damian, Patrick Hill, Phil Chow, Brent Roberts, and there's, there's at least two other authors, a meta-analysis of over 200 studies that were on effects of um, therapeutic interventions, usually cognitive behavioral therapy, but other types of interventions, including drugs like SSRIs, like Prozac, you know, on um, typically these studies were looking at psychopathology outcomes. All of these studies also measure personality, and they reported effects of personality, intervention effects. But those were not the points of these papers. These papers were largely in mental health or psychopathology journals. And so it was like the personality findings were a footnote. But what this group did, this is the group that was at University of Illinois, and they they found over 200 of these studies and found um, intervention effects on personality traits. The largest ones were on neuroticism. That would make some sense because all these psychotherapy techniques and, uh, you know, effects of antidepressants and so on, you know, would have an effect probably more on that trait than on any other. But they found effects on all, all of the big five. Of course, these were shorter term. It's, it's not clear as to whether these intervention effects lasted longer, like years later. But the fact that there were over 200 studies in this meta-analysis was quite interesting. That there, I know there's controversy about, you know, should we be doing interventions on personality? But this meta-analysis seemed to indicate that there are intervention effects and that following on that, the other thing I'd like to mention is a a fascinating paper from the University of Zurich in Switzerland. I think the first author was uh, Steger, but um, Matthias Aleman and some others were on this paper as well. And it got published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It describes a digital tool for personality intervention. It's called the PEACH. I believe it's still uh, only available in German. I don't think there's any other languages. I think it's only available in German, but it's a digital intervention to try to promote positive personality change. And that's fascinating as well. So I think these are really some interesting developments that have occurred in this area in recent years that, that I, I'm, I'm excited by. Although I'm aware that like many say, oh, no, no, we shouldn't be doing interventions. And I understand those arguments as well. But these studies are nonetheless very uh, fascinating to me. For me, I wanted to mention actually this paper from Vivian Steger and uh, Matthias Salemant, exactly this intervention study on personality change. Uh, but I'm mentioning one now that really I read during uh, my master and it stuck with me. It's a paper from uh, Swanche Müller from 2018. And then there they looked at reciprocal associations between extroversion, neuroticism and uh, objective uh, measures of health. And they made this distinction that uh, Dennis mentioned earlier between uh, young old and older adults, young old in the sample being older than 70 and up to 85, if I remember correctly, and oldest all being those that were um, older than 85. And what they, they found in line with lifespan notions is that for neuroticism, neuroticism predicted health only in the young old adults group, but then the reverse was true for the oldest old. So in this group, changes in health actually led to changes in uh, neuroticism. And I find it super intriguing. And I like this distinction and the focus on this oldest old because yeah, different things might happen towards later, yeah, later on in life. 
And another one that I, I think is really interesting, it's on cognition. And it's a paper of Gabriel Laru, where they found that personality predicts um, cognition as we know, but they also looked at involvement in leisure activities. And uh, they found that extroversion and openness was linked to higher involvement in social, in physical and mental leisure activities. And one interesting thing for me was that openness was linked to social activity to a similar degree as to mental activity. So older adults seem to get cognitive stimulation also through, through social interaction as well. So this is, of course, super interesting for me because of the grandparenthood interest and yeah, grandchild uh, caregiving who might as well have an impact on cognition. It's good to hear some of these really interesting findings. Also, hopefully for the listeners who may find it a calling card for the field of personality and aging. Thank you so much for agreeing to be here and to talk about uh, personality and aging and to share your own research and uh, your vast knowledge of other research. It has really been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Thank you.